0: Hey everyone, before we get started I wanted to say a quick word and please don't hit the skip 30 seconds button I promise I'm not going to make you listen to an ad for Squarespace or audible.com or Blue Apron. Uh, I just first of all wanted to say thank you. Our Facebook page is growing. We're seeing more and more fans every day from all over the world and that's very gratifying. In addition, Uh, We're seeing more and more subscribers every week, and that's outstanding. I can't thank you all enough. Please keep sharing, keep telling your friends, uh, stop people on the street, and, and be the crazy person telling them about this wonderful thing that you love. In addition, I wanted to mention, like I do at the beginning of every episode, that there are other ways that you can help. And I don't mean me, and I don't mean the podcast. I'm talking about real people. This episode, like other episodes, deals with some fairly serious and important themes, and I thought that you might want to know about some organizations that are out there that you can help make a difference. If you go to the show notes on the website, you'll see links for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Uh, They're doing great work, and they need your support. And if you're not from the United States. There are other organizations in your country or your community. Um, Certainly UNICEF is the gold standard when it comes to people doing good work around the world to help children. Like I said, there are links on the website, so please consider supporting them and also consider looking closer to home in your community. Consider volunteering at one of your local public schools or at a public library. Be a reader, be a mentor, be a tutor. And even if you have the time and inclination, consider being a big brother or a big sister to a kid in your community. There is so much we can do, and it takes so little from us, but it means the world to someone in need. Please consider it. Okay, I've said my piece. Let's get started Now, now now, now shall, shall I tell of things, things, things that change that change New no being, no being, no being out of old. Since, Since you are oh gods, O oh gods, oh gods, created oh gods created mutable created mutable Created mutable arts, arts and, gifts, and gifts, arts and gifts. Give me the voice, the voice, the voice, give me the voice, the voice voice voice. to tell the shifting, 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 the shifting story of the world. Twenty two years ago. I opened myself up, made myself vulnerable to the threat of immediate lifelong heartache and sorrow. In essence, I said to the universe, you now have the ability to inflict pain on me at any point throughout the rest of my life. At any point, you can now destroy me. In short, 22 years ago, I became a father. There are many rewarding things about being a parent, too many to list here. But the reality is that children exponentially increase your chances of being touched by tragedy, sorrow and pain. They are and will always be your weakest point. Your Achilles heel. For 22 years, I have lived under that shadow afraid for my children, and there's so much to fear in this world, so many monsters. For me, there is no greater fear than the fear of abduction, the fear that your child can be taken from you, that your protection has failed, and what horrors might be inflicted on them, and it's all your fault. When my son was about two years old, I started talking with him about the dangers of this world. Strangers, of course, specifically. And the people we think we know. The family friend, the neighbor, the coach, the cousin, or uncle. The people we trust who turn out to be strangers living among us as though masked. Their real faces unseen. Once, In a store, I turned for a moment to answer a question from the cashier waiting on me. When I turned back, my son was gone. In an instant, he vanished completely. Panic hit me like a wave. I took a step, then another. In the space between those two steps, my world changed forever. I saw my whole life stretching out ahead of me, awash in guilt and anger, searching for any sign that my son was still alive, tormented by what horrors were being inflicted on him, hounded by the tragedy and sorrow that I had brought down on me and his mother, just because I was distracted for a moment. In one step, my brain went into full-on John Walsh mode. And then I saw him. I saw my son he was standing one step away from me obscured from view by a pillar the relief but the fear never went away he's in his early 20s now and he has two younger siblings and my vulnerability is now compounded exponentially to the power of three There's the issue of safety, for instance. From the moment they're born, actually it starts even before that, you feel substantially responsible for your child. And then they're born, and all bets are off. As I put it to a friend a few months after my son was born, I can't remember what life used to be like before he was here. But I can imagine all too easily what it would be like if he wasn't. Because there are so many ways they can hurt you, your children. And I don't just mean by being hurt themselves. Sometimes they can hurt you all by themselves. Usually it starts in the teenage years, just in case you're wondering. But I know parents who have lost a child to accident or injury, or illness, or worse. I know parents who have had their children taken from them by disease, by a misplaced step and a fall, by a car, by a gun, by their own hand. Their pain is insurmountable, impossible. It never goes away. You can feel it when you're with them, like an aftertaste, something bitter and stale on their breath when they smile, a flat place behind their eyes. As when you become a parent, when something happens to your child, your whole world changes in an instant, and it will never be the same again. In our last episode, we started working through the story of Persephone. We talked about the abduction. We talked about all the different versions of the story moving backwards through the Romans to the Greeks and to the previous cultures where the story originates. It was hard going in a couple of spots. Difficult themes to try and unravel abduction and rape. And I know I missed a few things. I took a few tangents, and I know I maybe got a little too strident. I know. I heard it too. But I think we ended up in a good place. I, for one, understand the story a little bit better, a little bit more deeply than I did before. And I think I understand Hades and Persephone a little bit better as well. But as much as it is their story, it is also Demeter's story, too. It is a mother's story. I think people forget that sometimes. Demeter, as I'm sure you know, is the god of the harvest. For the Greeks and Romans, that's her primary claim to fame, though she also has various other aspects, older roles, including presiding over sacred law which plays an important role in the story of Persephone a little bit later on. Her name means grain mother, evoking key aspects of her personality. She is a maternal goddess, a mother, nourishing and caring. And she is also a nature goddess, a god of the earth, a god of the things that we grow for our substance and sustenance. Everything we owe to her. Gluten-free options, notwithstanding. Along with her daughter Persephone, Demeter predates the Grecian gods, the Olympians. Archaeology supports the idea that the whole mythology of Demeter, Persephone, and Hades was imported from Egypt into Greece via Crete. That's where Demeter as we know her begins. At least, that's how far back we can trace her. As we've discussed, these stories are like ripples in a pond, bouncing back and forth over millennia, running into each other, creating new versions as they collide, expanding and contracting over time. Like the story of her daughter's abduction, Demeter's part in the tale is equally murky. Some texts suggest that Demeter heard the cries for help as her daughter was carried off. Other texts say that Demeter noticed her daughter's tardiness and went looking for her. When I was growing up in the 70s, it was not uncommon during the summer for me to leave the house in the morning and not return until lunchtime. Then I would leave the house again and not return until dinner then, after dinner, etc., until bedtime. I can remember being four or five years old and going out and wandering through our neighborhood alone without a care or any sense of danger. And my mother and father certainly never had the talk with me about strangers that I can recall. As a parent, I'm baffled by this, wandering around on my own I was completely vulnerable. I was the perfect victim. I could have ended up in the back of a van countless times. I once asked my parents about it, and my father said, Remember, the world was different back then. There weren't kids on milk cartons. It was a different time. But was it really Is the world I'm raising my kids in all that different, that much more unsafe than the world I was raised in, or the world my father or my grandfather was raised in? And what of the ancient world? Was it any safer? I don't think that it was. I just don't think parents knew to be worried. For instance, Would Demeter have been worried? Her daughter was missing. But she went through the fields, calling out her name, hearing nothing in reply. Would she have been worried? Or would she have been annoyed? Where has that girl got to? Was she planning the punishment she would impose once she found her daughter again? If so, when do you imagine the fear began to set in? Think of it. Every flash of color, the wildflowers dancing in the breeze, butterflies flitting here and there. It must have been maddening. Is that her hair? Is that her dress? Imagine it. The moments stretching to minutes, to hours calling her name until your horse, nothing but silence? It would be enough to drive you mad in those first moments when you realize that your daughter is not answering. You start to look more frantically, the fear rising up the back of your neck like a sunburn, your skin and scalp tingling, burning, without realizing it. You stop looking for your daughter. Eventually, you're just looking for her body. Maybe there was an accident. Maybe she's hurt. Then you realize what you're doing and you reach out for whatever thin thread of hope you can grasp. Maybe she's just playing a game and she's going to be in so much trouble when I get my hands on her again. But even that passes eventually. You try to keep the frustration and anger, but it flickers out. And then you forget any thought of punishment. You would give anything to see her safe once more. Not even the echo answers when you call. The birds themselves fall silent, muttering in the trees as your worry and panic grows. See her there the golden goddess Demeter, pale and shaking with grief. See her standing there, looking down on a flattened hollow in the grass. She can maybe just make out the outline of her daughter's body like a crime scene. Nothing left but a little depression in the grass now, like the ones deer leave they sleep, nothing more now than a hollow cup to catch her tears. See her now, Demeter, wandering in the world, no longer searching, no longer frantic. The cold realization has set in like October ice on the skin of a pond. And now she wanders, helpless and bereft. Some versions of her story diverge here, taking Demeter down strange paths, paths that lead out of her story completely and into the stories of others. I don't like these. They feel tacked on to me and artificial, nonsensical even, so I'm not following them. Hey, it's my show. But now other versions, they... Read more like a detective story, with Demeter following the clues, a dropped scarf by a stream, the interrogation of a nymph who might have witnessed the abduction. But we know from our last episode that there was no abduction, right? The whole element of that comes late in the stories, when the ripples have spread far past Greece and into Rome. Let's play past that for a moment, because the detective story is a good story. There's the appearance of a sidekick, even, a snappy counterbalance to Demeter's grief. The goddess of the harvest meets the goddess of the crossroads, Hecate, and they team up for a road trip to solve the crime. I don't mean to be flippant. I like the versions where Hecate makes an entrance and helps Demeter. I like Hecate. I find she is a god who has suffered from the slow encroach of Judeo-Christian influence, slipping from a respected role in the pantheon to become nothing more than a Puritan boogeyman, well, boogeywoman. According to Hesiod, Hecate was a titan. She was one of the mighty who predate and begat the Olympians. Unlike the rest of the Titans, however, she was one of the few who did not battle with Zeus and his siblings when they rose up against Kronos. Hecate, along with a few others, stayed out of the clash and, afterwards, became a singularly influential and respected ally to the new gods. Zeus himself held her above all other deities, or so we're told, And he made her a nurse and a caretaker for the younger gods. Which begs the question, was Hecate a nanny for Korra? It really puts a whole different spin on Mary Poppins. So consider me hashtag Team Hecate. Anyone who watches out for children and the lost is all right by me. Hecate, in most versions of the story, doesn't have any answers, but she helps guide poor lost Demeter in the right direction. The moon goddess eventually leads Demeter to the bright and shining palace of Helios. Now, Helios was one of the Titans as well, one of the few who managed to retain his station and his status after the Olympian War. Though he was equated and eventually merged with Apollo by later writers, Those efficient Romans, why have two or three sun gods when one will do? Helios was often known as Helios Panopticon, all-seeing. Nothing that transpired escaped his gaze, at least, I assume, during the day. And there are numerous stories where he is called upon to provide an unimpeachable perspective on some dispute among the gods. In at least one instance, he's something of a tattletale as well, spilling the beans on the affair of Ares and Aphrodite to poor Hephaestus, but that's a story for another time. As the brother to the moon, Helios and Hecate show a balanced duality, much in the same way that the younger Apollo and Artemis do. So, Helios was a natural go-to for Hecate. If anyone knew anything about Cora's disappearance, if anyone was watching on that afternoon, it would have been the warm and smiling face of the sun. As for Demeter, this was the first and only bright ray of hope in her search. Maybe she would learn the fate of her daughter after all. Helios, as usual, is quick to relate what he has seen. Queen Demeter, daughter of rich-haired Rhea, I will tell you the truth, for I greatly reverence and pity you in your grief for your trim-ankled daughter. (sighs) Cut to the chase, dude. None other of the deathless gods is to blame, but only cloud-gathering Zeus, who gave her to Hades, her father's brother, to be called his buxom wife. And Hades seized her and took her loudly, crying in his chariot down to his realm of mist and gloom. Yet, goddess, cease your loud lament and keep not vain anger unrelentingly. Adonais, the ruler of many, is no unfitting husband among the deathless gods for your child, being your own brother and born of the same stock. Also, for honor, he has that third share which he received when division was made at the first and is appointed lord of those among whom he dwells. Okay, cold comfort from the sun god. As a side note, I need to update my social media profiles to include trim-ankled. At any rate, just imagine... How quickly Demeter's sorrow and worry turned to fury at his news. She knows Hades, knows him better than anyone. They share a common heritage, a common rulership of the earth and the cycle of life and death. In the pre-Hellenic myths, she is as much a Chthonic god as he is, moving between the upper and the underworld at will. She knows her brother. She knows he would never presume, never take such a step on his own. He isn't impulsive. It isn't in his nature. He would never risk the wrath of Zeus. Zeus? How loud did she say his name when she realized the truth, when the pieces fit together? Did she whisper it in resignation and despair? Or did her scream of rage echo across the world, reaching even up to the halls of Olympus? Demeter's fury burns brighter than the sun, too bright even for Hecate to endure. Zeus is less delicate when she confronts him. He stands his ground. He gave his word to his brother, and he's unwilling to renege. Maybe he regrets the decision. Maybe he feels guilty. Maybe he knows that Hades deserved better than he got. As I said before, that drawing of the lots never sat well with me. Zeus held the sticks and chose first. Something fishy about that. And none of the sister gods were present. Maybe that's just the culture and the practice of the time, the men make the decisions, the men negotiate, the men inherit the spoils. Or maybe the sisters were kept out so they wouldn't object to the terms being offered. Regardless, Zeus is unmoved and unmoving. It is too late to back out. He has given his word. Cora is the bride of Hades now, so she stays by her husband's side in the underworld. Period. The fire of Demeter's rage slowly cools into bleak, resigned despair. The next part is the story everyone knows. With Korra gone, Demeter is filled with sorrow. All joy goes out of her, and either through her intention or just sympathetic magic, the entire realm of nature suffers. You know where this is headed. The world turns cold the sun recedes and the sky turns to iron as dark and unforgiving as a god the trees and flowers wither and the crops fail then the snow comes and a winter more bitter than any other spreads over the earth true to form when the gods clash all mortal life pays a harsh price Only, that's not exactly what happened. At least, that's not how it went in the oldest versions of the story. As I was researching this episode, I was surprised to discover that the original versions of the story don't tell of a brutal winter at all. Instead, they tell of a punishing drought. You see, in the early versions of the story, the original ones... The wrath and sorrow of Demeter did not bring on winter. But instead, rather, it brought on a long, harsh drought, making the cultivation of crops impossible. Now, I wasn't able to find anything on why the story changed over time, why winter became the punishment for the earth instead of drought. So drop me a line if you know. But at any rate winter or drought, the mortals begin to suffer, and their prayers and lamentations fill the ears of the gods. On Olympus, Zeus finds himself plagued with complaints from the gods and the mortals, and he wavers. Maybe he decided that his debt to Hades was paid. Maybe his own comfort outweighed the bargain he'd made. Maybe he thought that enough time had passed that the maiden Cora might even want to return. Maybe Hades got sick of her and was just too polite or shy to say so. Whatever his reasons, Zeus called his son Hermes to him and commanded him to go and fetch back the bride of Hades. Now, although he wasn't necessarily accustomed to ferrying passengers back, Hermes, headed to the underworld. And what did he find there? Well, that's for our next episode. I think it's fairly common for people to view myth as a primitive way that ancient people tried to explain the natural world. Why is it so cold sometimes? Why do we have winter? Well, Because long ago, the god Hades was lonely. That genuinely annoys me. It dismisses thousands of years of science and culture, casting the roots of all of our so-called modern knowledge and civilization as nothing more than cave painting. We don't give the ancient world enough credit sometimes. We act like we have it all figured out, looking up the answers on Google, sneering at them there, scribbling their myths by oil lamp while we update our Tumblr. But those scribblings are the foundation of our cultures, our languages, literature, sciences, and yes, even our gods. These stories have meaning, regardless of whether or not they're factually accurate or historically true. But if we take these stories at face value, if we give them that small amount of respect, even just as an intellectual exercise, they have so much to teach us about ourselves, about the gods. For instance, in so many ways, we have the same fears, the same vulnerabilities, a lot of the time that i've been researching and writing this episode i've been outside if any of you know me personally you know how contrary that is to my usual preference i tend to avoid exposure to sunlight fresh air and the natural world at least during the summer but it's summer and my youngest daughter often wants to play in her wading pool And I am nothing if not overprotective, so I sit out there in the heat of the afternoon and keep a watchful eye out. Lots of parents let their kids play out in the backyard unattended, hell, even the front yard. The sun is there, I know, and Helios Panopticon sees all, but I prefer not to take the risk. I don't know that he's got a particular stake in keeping my family safe. He didn't exactly stick his neck out for Cora. That's the one thing about the gods. It's so hard to know if they care. I mean, obviously, they care. They're not automatons or cold, unresponsive idols. They have their cares. They play their favorites, they quarrel and they bargain, they seduce and abandon, and yet they show interest, if not actual care for the world. Affection, even. We know that Demeter cares about her daughter. We know that Cora cares about her mother, and maybe, in time, she comes to care for her husband. And we know that after everything Demeter has gone through, the pain and sorrow she endured when her child was stolen from her, this turns out to be the cruelest twist of all. That her daughter chooses to stay with her husband, even if only for an interval each season. It's a painful betrayal, a dismissal of all Demeter's suffering and all of her efforts to rescue her daughter. But that's only, of course, if you choose to believe the later versions of the stories. As a side note, if you haven't yet read George O'Connor's Olympians series yet, you really need to take a look. The volume on Hades is my favorite of the bunch, and I think it does a masterful job of balancing all these themes and different versions while still conveying the depth of emotion and resonance in the story of how Cora becomes Persephone, which reminds me that there is one character in this story whom we haven't spent much time with: Hades. We've been talking about him for a few episodes now. He's there and brief little mentions, but he's a cipher. He's unseen. In our next episode, I'll try to remedy that. We'll take a visit to one of my favorite pieces of metaphysical real estate, the underworld, and we'll get a better look at its off-maligned and misrepresented ruler. Until then, thank you for listening. Be well. Take care of each other. And may your gods bless you. Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. So, now you know who to blame. The contents of this episode are copyright 2016, T.M. Camp, and may not be copied, distributed, transmitted, or otherwise reproduced in any format or medium without his express written permission. Violators will suffer terrible fates over long years as the slow curse of the gods takes root in their lives and poisons the very foundations of all they have tried to build. Join us online at findyourgods.com or on Facebook at facebook.com findyourgods. We're also on Twitter at findyourgods. You can also find us on findyourgods.tumblr.com And we're even on Pinterest because, you know, why not?